Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the public pension crisis. And Richard, we talked just recently on this show about uh, Janice v. AFSCME, this major case before the Supreme Court that's going to determine whether public sector employees have to pay union dues even if they don't join the union. And one of the reasons that so many people are interested in that case is that it gets to the question of union power in American politics, especially at the state and local level. And one of the areas where that is most acutely felt is in public pensions. So let's just start with the basics of that issue here. Uh, one of the things that distinguishes most public sector pensions from most private sector pensions is that they tend to be what are called defined benefit plans as opposed to what are called defined contribution plans. Explain the distinction between those two and why this can create problems for public sector budgets. Well, first of all, there are many and probably a majority of the private sector employees that define benefit plans. Uh, folks like myself who are in TIA, CREF, for example, are always in defined contribution plans. And most people who think seriously about pensions tend to prefer the contribution to the benefit plan. So it's nice to get what the distinction out is. When I fill out my TIA account, what I do is I designate a certain amount of money from my paycheck that goes into this fund and the university gives a match of one-to-one one or one-and-a-half-to-one, you sometimes could have a supplemental plan. And the moment you put that money in the plan, it is vested in you and portable, meaning if you leave that particular employer, uh, you can go and take that pension plan somewhere else or just let it sit and stew and get all the appreciation and take it down whenever you want or however you want when it comes to the time of retirement. Since the money is a fixed sub, they will give you a menu. They're saying if you want a self and survivor menu um, option, you get so much. A self only option, you get so much. 20 years certain, you get so much. A lot of different variations. But all the investment risks are on you who are the holder of the pension. And what happens then is to make sure that this thing works out. Uh, universities and other people typically tell people who are that way, you have to manage your plans in a central, sensible fashion. Some institutions say, well, you can't put it all in equity. You can't leverage it. You have to have so much in debt. Others give you more freedom. But no matter which way it goes, there is no more public obligation after the money is put in. And there is no question of having to keep on the job to get it. A defined benefit plan is exactly the opposite. What it says is we are going to have a formula and that formula is going to determine how much money that you receive when you retire at a certain date. And what happens is at that particular point, uh, the employer puts aside a certain sum of money in its own account and invests it as it sees fit. And if it turns out that there is a huge surplus in the defined benefit account, uh, since the risk is now on the employer, that employer can take out all the money that he can so long as he can meet the obligations, which that which remains. But the key point is in the event that there is a shortfall from the funds, uh, then the employer has to make it up from other revenues. Uh, so essentially, it's a risk-shifting device. And presumably, if you were playing the game straight, it would not make a difference as to which way you went. You could do technically accurate judgments, and the argument in favor of the defined benefit plan is commonly employers are better risk bearers than a low-income employee, so let's do it that way. The difficulty comes with the fact that when you're talking about a defined benefit plan, it is subject to political manipulation. 
Uh, so you have to figure out what these uh, formulas are going to be. And typically they're based upon years of service, last salary, times by a certain kind of multiplier of some sort or another. And you can change the multiplier in any way, shape, or form. And if you decide to increase it, all of a sudden the obligations will go up enormously. So that's one particular peril. The other question is how do you determine the base number of hours? Typically these plans are done on average salary for say the last three or four years. It is well known in many public plans and fan plans that what happens is people get close to retirement. They're given lots of overtime work. Uh, that overtime work inflates the size of the base, which means that when you give you a multiplier, you're doing it over 1.3% of regular salary rather than a 1.0% of your salary. Huge difference on these things. And then the third feature, at least in most public pension plans, which is not to in private pension plans, is that the pension formula that you get is said to vest at the time that the employment begins. What this means is that they cannot cut back on the, on the formula. They can cut back on the formula for the money that you've already considered, contributed, and they can cut back on the money with respect to future work on a pre-existing contract. Uh, so if they say you're going to get 3% on your base salary at age 50 with 30 years service, they can never make it worse. They can only make it better. And so unions have this enormous incentive to constantly try to ratchet this stuff up. And the hope then is that you'll get the money back by reducing the salaries and pensions to new employees. But if you're thinking about a pension crisis today, if you take in a new employee in 2018, his pension or her pension won't come due until 2050 or something like that. Uh, so it's a negligible effect. Uh, so the political pressure on the defined pension plans become acute. And the reason is quite simply, unions often sit on both sides of the table. They represent themselves and they have an enormous influence in the selection of who's in the legislature. So the two sides get together. They vote on increases as happened in California in 1999. And then the only way that you could get rid of those increases that are prepared is to get some kind of legislative override in some cases, which never happens. Uh, so that you look at a place like California, Chicago, a bunch of other places, it turns out uh, that the money that they put aside for the pensions is insufficient to cover them. And then you have to go back to general revenues, raise general taxes, cut other kinds of services, and you have a full-scale crisis. Richard, one of the responses that you'll hear from people who defend these public sector defined benefit plans is that they need these kinds of retirement benefits to attract qualified workers to government work. Does that argument cut any ice with you? No. Um, first of all, if you need qualified workers, the appropriate way to do it is to follow the standard formulas that you get in private industry and then just simply change the base salary that's associated with it. And if you look, what you'll see is that you are attracting qualified workers by giving them essentially perhaps as much as 50 or 75 percent more in total compensation than their private worker analogs. Indeed, one of the reasons why many private union workers uh, tend to be very uneasy with the Democratic Party is they know that their public union equivalents get far richer deals. Public employer has much more employee has much more by way of tenure. The pension set in at a much earlier age. So if you retired at 50 or 55, you start drawing the pension immediately. You could go out into the private sector, get another job, keep your pension, and then pile Social Security on top of that uh, so that you're really way ahead of the game. What you do is you use the correct formulas, and I think those generally recover 
uh, defined contribution plans. And then what you do is you use competitive salaries for government jobs, given that the work is usually less demanding and the risk of being fired is somewhat lower, you would actually expect to see slightly lower wages in a competitive market. Uh, so I think that argument carries no weight uh, whatsoever under these circumstances. The real problem that we have is we've made so much overcompensation. The question is, how do you cut back on a system which is set to have a very strong level of vested rights? That was going to be precisely my next question. I'd like you to start by explaining to us some of the jurisdictions anyway where there have been rulings um, that have articulated legal protections for these for these rights that have vested. It does make the you know listeners who are hearing your discussion of this might be inclined to say, well, you've just laid out an arithmetic problem, just change the spending. But it's a little more complicated well, than that. Is. Well, first of all, you have to figure out what the word vested means. And in ordinary English, you're vested when you're clothed. And in the legal system, if you're vested, you're clothed, which means you're fully protected. And so the initial question is, when does that time of full protection go? In the private sector, the formula is something as follows. Uh, with respect to contributions on the defined benefit plan that are made in the early years, they don't vest until you're in for five years. And then you could make changes with respect to future contributions because you're not committed to the formula. If you're working in the public sector, rights are vested on the day you're hired and that you cannot ratchet things down in the future uh, unless you provide people an equivalent benefit and ratchet them back up again. So essentially, you have one or two percent degrees of freedom in this business. You're committed to this for life. So long as these guys are employed, uh, you can change it. Uh, this puts an enormous pressure on the overall nature of the financial system in all the states in which this has happened. And what happens is there is a contracts law under both the or contracts clause under both state and federal law, which says that the government cannot impair the obligation of contracts. When this is applied to private contracts or to federal contracts with private firms, um, for example, dealing with pension guarantee funds, the basic principle is if the federal government wants to do in a private party which is signed onto one of these plans, it can do it. So there are many federal cases which say for a variety of reasons, if the government says we want you to join this pension insurance program and then you but you can get out if you don't think it's advantageous to you, they can pull the rug on you saying we're not letting you go out because we've got a bunch of losses and you have to cover them. It turns out you have zero protection against the federal government or the contract clause protection is worthless. When you get into the state system and you get vested rights, these things are absolutely sacred. And so if you look at the key decisions in California and in New York and in Illinois, they all sort of talk about this vested from the day of first employment and the contract clause protects you. So every single one of these cases that one sees, the only debate you have is not over the question as to whether or not the rights are fully vested. It's a question as what counts as a right. And so to give you an example, in a case like Illinois, one of the things you have to ask is, are you going to be protected if it turns out that what you're talking about are not pension obligations, but health care obligations? And you could argue that there's slightly different rules that apply to the two of them, but the Illinois court was very clear. We give a liberal construction of these things in order to protect the insureds the employees. And so under these purposes, they're fully vested on both sides. And what you now see is when the legislatures realize that they're facing Armageddon and they try to cut back on this stuff, even in a liberal state like Illinois, these very modest compromises can get blown out of the water uh, by the state Supreme Court. Uh, so they've got constitutional protection, which gives you very, very few degrees of freedom. And what you do is the exact opposite 
Under state law, union pensions are rock solid. Under federal law, obligations are promises that the federal government makes to people whom it asks to join pension insurance programs are absolutely porous. And you can see obviously why it is that the unions always, when they're in state court, are pleading their state constitutional rights. To that end, let's talk about some of the other public sector implications. As states or municipalities struggle with their pension liabilities, it can give rise to a phenomenon that people who study pensions refer to as crowd out, which affects the way that the public sector does their budgeting. Explain how that works. Well, I'm, I actually worked very briefly on one of these cases having to do with San Jose, which had a very courageous mayor, a man named Chuck Reed, who was term limited out. And he managed to organize a referendum in which what was going to happen was he said, I have to cut back on these pension obligations in order not to crowd out other kinds of things that are required out of my state budget, current police and fire service, schools, education, libraries, parks, welfare assistance, you name it. And the crowding out refers to the fact that if the pension obligations are large and they have a first priority over all other matters, then in effect, those other things are going to be crowded out. Uh, so if you want to think of a budget and the pensions are originally 10%, you've got 90% of the other stuff that can be done. If the pensions now go up to 40%, all of a sudden you have to cut down from 90 to 60% for the other stuff, and you're down to two-thirds of what you had. And so what Reed wanted to do and other people wanted to do in California was to say, look, we're all in this together. If we're going to have to cut back on things, we're going to have to cut back on pensions. Here are ways in which we can do it. You can keep the current level of benefits if you want, but you got to put more money into the plant to fund it. Or you could keep your contributions low, at which point we're going to reduce your benefits, but we're only going to do it to the point where we create proration amongst these various programs. So essentially what they were trying to do was to avoid the crowding out. They weren't trying to completely eliminate the pensions. And it was exactly that, eliminating the pensions, which originally drove the courts in California in a case called Kern from 1945 to say these rights are vested from the time that you work. And this case was tried in district court within the state, the state court rather, and the judge there, she basically announced that uh, this particular thing was in violation of the contracts clause. You can't get to it. And so the crowding out takes place in all of these plans. You try to get popular legislation to reverse it. The legislation in this case was remarkably well considered and organized. It was passed with very strong supermajorities, and the whole thing counted for naught. Uh, because essentially what happened is there was a total right. So the only way you can get out of this is to argue that a certain benefit which is conferred upon uh, employees who are public employees at either the state, local, or municipal level is that they're somehow or other not contract benefits. And that gives rise to another completely different body of jurisprudence and a very important one. So the final question that I'll ask you as we sort of zoom out a little bit, you and I have talked before on this show about the dangers that the federal government faces from debt that it can't afford, driven largely by the big entitlement programs. Mm -hmm. Now you add on to that the pension problem at the state and local level. Considering those things in tandem, Richard, how worried should the average citizen be about the country's fiscal future? 
I think one has to be very, very worried because at the federal level, it's not the question of vested rights. I think everybody understands that you can cut back on Social Security and Medicare if you could get political majorities, but there is a profound unwillingness to do so because the beneficiaries tend to be older, a lot of time on the hand, well-organized, politically connected, and so forth. So it's a terrible fight. Uh, to give you but one illustration, there was an effort to reform the payout schedules for Social Security a dozen or so years ago. And what they wanted to do was to essentially uh, basically postpone the years at which the particular benefits would vest. So whatever you get today at 65, given the fact that longevity is older, you'd get first at 66, then at 67, 67 and a half or whatever. And even one year of postponement is a big deal. It means you got roughly a little bit less than one year of protection, uh, protection, and you got another year to build the money up. So it does change the balance. And you looked at this thing, and if I get the numbers correctly, this was not going to take place during the period of 1943 to 1954. That is for people who were born there. So what you do is you got an 11-year carve-out under this system, which could only be explained by pure political pressure, that you're trying to defer this thing, and then you're going to do it again and again. So what you see is essentially deep reluctance. You try to reform the Medicare system, you get exactly the same problem. You got a little bit more luck when it comes to Medicaid, because those are poorer people who don't have quite the political clout. And so if I go back and I remember the way in which the debates over Medicare took place and Medicaid took place in the 1950s, you had people saying, these programs will be fully funded. We will bring a set of green eye shades to make sure that the cost controls will be put into place. Nothing is going to happen. Just to give you one couple of numbers or one or two numbers, um, originally the plan was that Medicare would be 50-50 between contributions to the program made by recipients and then the other 50% from the public. Uh, The ratio is basically three to one, the public picking up much, much more. Everybody thought that somehow or other, if you knew what the amount of services were before the bill was put into effect, you knew the amount of services that were going to be demanded later. Somebody forgot to tell them that if you offer large services at zero or very close to zero price, uh, what's going to come up under these sort of circumstances is there's going to be a lot heavier demand. Then if you tie what they're going to get paid uh, to what reasonable physicians charge for their services in the private market, if you drop out all of the low-income people, um, then you're going to find out that the demand that you're going to see in the general market for private services will start to go up and the cost will become higher because you're going to have this constant pressure from other people. And so you're going to change the pay scale. You're going to increase the quantity of service. And the whole thing essentially spun out of control within a year or two after this thing started. And in effect, nobody wanted to do anything about it. The way we do our Medicaid budgeting, our Medicare budgeting, particularly the Medicare budgeting, is first you figure out what the obligations are, and then you figure out how to tax in order to get it up. So you pay capital gains tax to serve Medicare and all the rest of this. So I'm very pessimistic about this because there's no judicial willingness to deal with this in a constructive and sensible way to realize the enormity. And the political pressures are such uh, that the organized groups tend to be strongly in favor of keeping these benefits. And, you know, just a kind of symbolic version. In 2012, I remember seeing uh, Mitt Romney, a smart guy, Rand Bain, a really able businessman. He was campaigning in Florida. And in front of the podium, there was a two-word sign in front of it which said, protect Medicare. 
And, you know, that tells you what the Republican position is. You know what the Democratic position is. So I do think that the public choice nightmare that was envisioned a long time ago by James Madison is something which is likely to come forward. We need to have prosperity in order to get ourselves out of it. That's the only hope, at least in the short term. And just to end on this somber note, if we enter into a series of suicidal trade wars with foreign countries, which our president is inclined to do, this will drive the stock market down very severely and will exacerbate these problems, which prosperity, which is achievable by sensible market reforms, would help to alleviate. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.